Amen. Thank you, Junins. That absolutely has a lot to do with our text this morning. If you'll please turn in your New Testaments to Matthew chapter 5. We are in our second installment of our new sermon series of the Sermon on the Mount entitled Kingdom Living. And we're going to be camping out for the next several weeks in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. So I will read Matthew 5 verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray now that as we read these precious words of life, as we study them, Would you apply the truth that is contained therein to our hearts and to our lives? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a day and age where to say that you are a Christian means a bunch of different things to a bunch of different people, unfortunately. If you were just to ask the general evangelical community, To define what it means to be a Christian, I think that most would tell you what means to be happy, happy, happy all the time, right? And if you're not happy, happy, happy all the time, you must not have it all figured out. You could go to the the health and wealth community of the Christian faith and ask them what it means to be a Christian, and they'll tell you very plainly it means that you are blessed with lots of material and earthly things, if you are Christian. If we just go to the secular world and ask just the world, what does it mean to be a Christian? Then they're probably going to tell you something along the lines of that Christians are those that kind of hate culture and think that everybody's going to hell. A lot of misinterpretation about what it means to be a Christian, but we must not be defined by what the world says or even by what TV Christianity might portray. No, as Christians, we need to be defined biblically. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible mean when someone is a Christian? One of those definitions is given for us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Verse 4, the second beatitude will be our our focus this morning of study, and it simply says here that a Christian is one who mourns. 
a Christian mourns. The gospel says, blessed are those that mourn. What a crazy thing to say. <laughs> what a counter, countercultural thing to say. What a, what a radical thing to say. What a, what a very unpopular thing to say. But Jesus said it. <laughs> and he taught it to his disciples. And so it meant something. And it means something for us. Jesus has something to teach us. I do want us to be careful this morning. There are eight different Beatitudes that Jesus gave us. And so they don't all exist in a vacuum in and of themselves. They all go together. The totality of these Beatitudes are what it means to be a Christian, what it means to participate in kingdom living. And that's why they're called Beatitudes. We said last week that the word Beatitudes comes from the Latin word beatus, which means uh, to be blessed or happy. And so that's why our English Bibles translate this Greek word blessed as it means to be divinely, divinely favored. To be blessed or blessed is to go far beyond just simple happiness. It's teaching us something far more profound, far more than just being content. To be blessed is to bask in the grace and favor and love of God. Jesus is teaching us about the attitudes that Christians are to have living in the kingdom of God. And these characteristics that we see here in the Beatitudes are to cause us to look at our own hearts and to look at our own lives and how we are living for God. These Beatitudes, they're attributes, they're attitudes that we are to, to be, that we are to have. And I quote again, as I did last week from Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, we're not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become Christian. Rather, we are told, because you are a Christian, live like this. The Beatitudes are the character that we are to strive for in kingdom living. So as we look at verse 4, this second Beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are two questions I want us to answer this morning. Two questions. The first is, what does it mean to mourn? And secondly, what does it mean that those who mourn will be comforted? So what does it mean to mourn? We've already discovered that these attributes, these attitudes, these Christian characteristics, they're not ordinary expressions. They're spiritual expressions. They're they have spiritual meanings. And one of these spiritual attributes, one of these things that Jesus says kingdom living is to have, is that Christians are to mourn. What does that mean? It simply means this. Those who mourn are those who hate their sin. Those who mourn are those who grieve over sin. That is what it means to mourn, to grieve over sin. But let's talk for a minute what it doesn't mean. Because it's easy to look at this beatitude and 
fail to interpret it in light of other Jesus' teachings on the matter and other places in Scripture that talk about mourning and grieving over sin. Jesus does not mean that Christians who are mournful or who go around mourning, they're not folks who are just depressed all the time. They're not those who just walk around going, woe is me, all the time. A mournful Christian should not be that person in the room that you're trying to avoid. (laughs) That's not what it means. And Jesus also is not offering just sentimentality. He's not offering just quotes for us to put on our refrigerator. Oftentimes the, the Beatitudes are read this way, that Jesus is just offering these little worldly snippets of living. But he's not saying... Do your best to get through the hard times. Jesus is not saying, don't worry, be happy. I'm pretty sure he wasn't into reggae music. Jesus was not saying that time heals all wounds, so just move on with your life. Jesus is speaking about kingdom living and what it means to be a child of the king and to live in his kingdom. Last week, we discussed the first beatitude, and that those who are poor in spirit are those who realize that they don't possess any resources in and of themselves to save themselves. Christians are called to be poor in spirit. It was not a call to be poor in things. It had a spiritual meaning to it. And in addition to this, to be one who mourns, is not one who is sad or melancholy all the time. One who mourns is one who grieves over their sin. And so that is what Jesus is describing here, a spiritual mourning. It's not a worldly mourning. It's a spiritual mourning. Spiritual mourning or grieving over our sin is what Jesus is talking about here. The response would be that something similar to Isaiah in chapter 6. When Isaiah began his prophetic ministry and he found himself caught up in some type of spiritual state where he was there present in the throne room of God. And what did he do? Did he go, ooh, neat, let me take a picture? No. He said, woe is me. I am undone, I am a sinner, and I am going to die at the sight of the holy God. That was his response to his sin. In the, again, in the first beatitude, we discovered that to be poor in spirit was to recognize that we had no resources to save ourselves, and that this is not only important for our justification, but also for our sanctification. We can rely on nothing but the grace of God through Christ in our lives. But now we are to recognize that as sinners in the sight of the holy God, this should grieve us. This should call us to cry out. As we sang just a moment ago, from the depths of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Lord, if thou iniquities dost mark, Lord, if you were to keep a record of all my sins, who could stand before the Lord? 
no one. Mourning over sin does not go away once we become Christians. Let me repeat that again. Mourning over our sin, grieving over our sin, does not go away once you become a Christian. As we grow in our faith, as we seek to live life in the kingdom of God, we are to practice what the old theologians call mortification. And mortification is to put sin to death in our lives. We are to die to sin. We are to strive to rid our lives of sin. And we are to realize that we're far more sinful than we could ever imagine. And this awareness of sin in our lives is to be aware of how costly sin is. Sin sin cost Jesus his life. Our sins nailed him to the cross. He died the death that we deserve for sin. Our sin caused him to experience the full wrath of God on our behalf. This is a true characteristic of the Christian life. We mourn We grieve over sin. This is kingdom living. We do not dismiss our sin. We we do not treat our sin lightly. We grieve over it. We hate our sin. We mourn our sin. Because again, the Bible does not teach that we are saved by grace and therefore we don't have to worry about our sin. We should always be aware of our sin. John Stott said this, I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. And I agree with what Sinclair Ferguson adds to this. It is grace that makes us mourn our sinfulness. It is grace that makes us mourn our sinfulness. I know for me, personally, when I am failing to grieve over my sin, when I am failing to confess my sin to the Lord, then I am failing to see my need for a Savior. And thereby default to becoming my own savior. When I fail to grieve over my own sin, I fail to see that Jesus was crucified for my sin. And I fail to see his great love for sinners of who I am the chief in this room. I'm sure of it. I've met most of you. We're all great sinners in need of a great Savior. Kingdom living, Christian living, biblical living means to mourn over your sin. But I don't want to just stop there. We have to keep going because this spiritual mourning means much more. 
It also means that we not only mourn over our own sins, but we also mourn over the sin of the world. We're to look around at the culture and the state of things, and it should cause us to be sad, to mourn, to mourn a world that has abandoned kingdom living, to mourn a world that sees sin, nothing more than just a character flaw. We're to mourn a culture that teaches that if it feels good, then do it. Christians are to mourn the sin of the world. And we're realistic about the sin of the world, right? We don't just ignore it. We don't just say, oh, well. We don't pretend that sin and evil does not exist. No, as Christians, we are to call sin for what it is and evil for what it is. Some of you may read uh, on a weekly or daily basis different articles on a website called the Gospel Coalition. And a man who is an editor and writer for that website named Trevin Wax recently published an article called President Obama's Mythical 21st Century. It's called President Obama's Mythical 21st Century. Now, before I read this quote, this is not a political statement. This is used as an example and as an illustration of the way we as Christians are to view the world. He said this in his article. President Obama's remarks on the Friday, I'm sorry, President Obama's remarks on the Foley incident included a theme that surfaces frequently in political discourse today. It is the theme of progress, the future, and what it means to live in the 21st century. Obama sounded the note of hope by appealing to the future when he said, People like ISIS ultimately fail. They fail because the future is won by those who build and not destroy. And the world is shaped by people like Jim Foley and the overwhelming majority of humanity who are appalled by those who killed him. Wax goes on to say, the president's comment about the future may be powerful rhetoric, but is not reality. If history shows us anything, it's that the future has often belonged to those who are passionate enough about their cause to destroy anything in their way in order to build something different. We do not live in an ideal world. We do not live in a utopia. We live in a sinful world. A world that has outright rebelled against the holy and triune God. Kingdom living means that we don't long for a more progressive society. We long for a world that hates sin and strives to live in conformity with the law of God that is taught in the Bible. The President of the United States of America and we too should not long for a utopic future where we can just dismiss sin as not progressive. We should long for a present reality where evil is called evil. 
And sin is named for what it is. Outright rebellion against God. Just look at the world that we live in. Look in our culture. How could we not mourn? How could we not look at many of the things on TV? How could we not look at the world's view of violence and of sex? How could we not look at what the culture deems as important and not important and mourn over sin? I think that Jesus is calling us to mourn a reality in which sin is grieved over. Jesus is calling us to look at the world around us and to grieve over the rebellion against God. But again, let me caution us. We must be balanced here. We don't look at the world and say, see, see those bad people, see what they're doing. We first and foremost look at our own hearts. We first and foremost look in the mirror and go, there is enough sin and evil right here (laughs) to ruin this world. We are to mourn our, our sin first and foremost. And then we mourn the sin of the world. But again, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just say mourn sin and be done with it. He gives a great promise. What does Jesus mean when he says that those who mourn will be comforted? Jesus, again, describing a spiritual mourning, says that those who mourn will be comforted. Jesus has just dropped a bomb on us by saying that those who mourn are blessed. They're they're happy. They experience God's divine favor. But how? He says they will be comforted. They will be consoled and comforted in a way that only Jesus can give. They will receive an assurance that can only be granted to those who live and are a part of his kingdom. What Jesus is getting at here this morning is that our grieving over our sin, our mourning over our sin, it's, it's not a normal Morning. It's an eschatological morning. Okay, that's a big, huge word this morning. I know it's early, it's 9 o'clock, your brain just cramped when I said that word. So let me define it for you. Eschatological means the study of end times. To have an eschatological morning is to have an eye toward the future. Toward the end when Jesus will consummate all things in heaven and on earth and bring them under his rule and reign. And so to have this comfort that Jesus describes that only Jesus can give is to have an eschatological hope, a future hope, a more sure comfort. To have this comfort that only Jesus can give We do not mourn as believers. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. We don't just say, oh, well, and live depressed all the time. We mourn as those who have hope. 
we see our sins in light of the cross. And we see that Jesus' death for us was on the cross. And we see that there is a great future hope for us in that. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We grieve, we mourn, as those who have hope. We grieve, we mourn, because we long for that eschatological hope that the Apostle John describes in Revelation 21. A great comforting passage for us. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. One day, we will no longer mourn over sin. The apostle says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That is our hope. That is our comfort. Mourning isn't forever. Jesus says that those who spiritually mourn will be comforted. Do you know this comfort? Do you see your need for this comfort? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Do you see it? The only comfort that we have in life is through Jesus. There's another catechism teaching that has taught Christians for hundreds of years called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the very first question asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. 
because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Jesus is our comfort. As we have said before and as we have said many times over, and we'll say more, Jesus is the perfect example of these attributes. He is what it means to be perfect. He knows what it means to mourn. Isaiah tells us in chapter 52 and 53 that he was a man of sorrows. He was accustomed to grief. We know that he mourned over the sin of the world. He mourned over the cup of wrath that he was to drink on behalf of sinners. But he also knew the joy that was set before him. He also knew the comfort that awaited him. And that is why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Do you mourn over your sin? Then look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one who gives us comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us where we treat sin lightly. Forgive us for we are worldly. Forgive us for we have not mourned over our own sin and the sin of the world. So Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit and that you would help us to mourn as Jesus mourned. But not just stop there, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, his perfect life and his death on the cross on our behalf, that we have received the ultimate comfort and joy. We praise you and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.